Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director John Krasinski's new sci-fi thriller, A Quiet Place. Set in a very near future when most of Earth's population has been eradicated, the film follows a family of survivors forced to live in silence as they hide from savage extraterrestrial creatures that hunt exclusively by sound. In addition to A Quiet Place, Mr. Krasinski's directorial credits include the feature films The Hollers and brief interviews with hideous men, and episodes of the television series The Office. After a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Krasinski spoke with director Doug Lyman about filming A Quiet Place. Highlights from their discussion include location scouting for the film on Zillow, why Mr. Krasinski was afraid to ask his wife, actress Emily Blunt, to play the lead role, and the advice that guided him through directing, don't treat the audience like it's stupid. Uh, uh, it's a real thrill to be uh, talking to you like this. Oh my God, thank you for um, doing this. You know, we, uh, I've known John a long time. I knew him in college. Uh, <laughs> and uh, to see him go from that to, to this unbelievable accomplishment is, is... Thank you so much. I mean, like, where do you go from here? <laughs> I mean, you, you, you're like... This is my announcement it, You starred in it, <laughs> yeah. co-wrote it. I mean, you, you hit every possible... Uh, measure of success a film could possibly have. I didn't know I was going to announce my retirement tonight, but it looks like that's where we're <laughs> headed. Okay, well. Do you feel the, uh, how, how do you, uh, what do you think about what, like, how does this affect what you might do next? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, it's, it's hugely effective in that I don't think Emily and I have even processed what's happening right now. You know, I mean, I think we, genuinely thought we were making a special movie that was different and felt new and fresh and all those things but i think we were hoping just to get a high five from a couple friends <laughs> i don't know that i don't know that we ever expected it to do certainly the business or to be embraced the way that it's been embraced and and uh i don't know it's kind of that high school thing of the fundamental idea of what you think is cool no matter how old you get, you still have that fundamental fear of like, man, I hope everybody else thinks it's cool. And then you walk into your proverbial school and everybody goes, well, that's cool. And you go, wow, that felt great. So I'm still as insecure as I was in high school is what I'm saying. Okay. So am I. Uh, although you're a lot better looking, so I imagine you're, I don't know what you had to be insecure about in high school. Uh, but uh, so what are they? The creatures? Yeah. Good question. That's a good question. Um, are they aliens? Where, what are they? They are aliens that uh, came to Earth in meteors. So they all crashed onto Earth. And so one of the things, we, have, we had all this tremendous amount of backstory for the creatures and what happened and this family. And we had talked about it. I had written it out. <clears throat> it was never in the script, though. We knew that it was just for us and for the designers. And it's funny. There was a, um, I had written this movie, Promised Land, a while ago, and, and uh, Focus Features did it. And this incredible guy was the head of marketing at the time named Jack. And uh, we went in there and talked to him about marketing. And at the end, I couldn't help but ask him, what's the one thing that everybody makes the mistake of in this business? And he said, the one thing everybody makes the mistake of is thinking that the audience is stupid. They, they hate um, being spoon-fed. No matter where you are in the country, that's all uh, bullshit, too. It just 
they want to work for it and they want to be with you on it. They don't want to be ahead of you or behind you. So, and he was so furious by it. it, it always stayed in my brain. And so when we were making this movie, I literally said to Emily, I'm going to take Jack's advice and I, you know, I don't want to frustrate anybody, but I'm going to see how far I can push this idea of can you figure this out with the family? And that's the other thing is this family doesn't know what is happening. So in order for you to feel like you're with the family, I thought that subconsciously you'd really connect to the family a lot more if you were in the exact same spot. I thought it would be weird if you knew the whole backstory. Um, like a like a, a found footage version of an opening before the movie started. There's laughter, so they're like, not that, please, not that again. Oh, God, we've seen that before. Um, yeah, no, I think you did an incredible job with them. I mean, especially, you know, there's been many a director, many a great director who's fallen flat on their face where they sort of finally reveal the creature, uh, and it, it, it disappoints. Um, and, and I just thought, you know, your creature was... was that, that ear was just something so unique. It was, you know, since, you. since Alien, we haven't had sort of a, a design of, of an alien creature that was, you know, so well conceived of for the threat that wow. it posed. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was, I have to say, you know, for I'm sure a lot of people in this room know the genius of ILM. Um, the men and but they women have to have an idea to work off of. True, and we and we had this thing where it's funny. I remember my dad when we were kids. Uh, one of the best bits of advice he gave us was, one of the most confident things you can say as a person is, "I don't know." And I remember going in and I had all this written down. I had these drawings. I even got on the floor, <laughs> and the guys at ILM videotaped me walking. Pretty sure that was just for their enjoyment. Um, and so I had all these ideas, but I said, "I don't." I, I'm not saying I know what's right, so let's do it together. And I had the great, one of the best compliments I ever had was uh, at the end of the process, a bunch of the guys at ILM said this is one of their favorite movies they've ever worked on. And I think it's because there was a very, um, it just felt like a dance. It felt like we were doing this together and figuring them out together. The creature changed dramatically from um, shooting to editing. By the time we were editing, we changed him completely. There was something about him, her, them. Uh, there was something about... I just knew in the frame that he wasn't, the guy we designed wasn't gonna work. And uh, so ILM completely changed him with me. And then the ear, to be honest, we were out of budget and we were out of time. And so the everything was locked, it was just delivering at this point. And I called ILM and I, it was about three weeks from delivery and I said, I have this idea that I've been tinkering with and I realize we have to do it, we have to do this ear, we have to go into his perspective. And the coolest part about ILM is, again, with no money and no time, the response was, we'll do it. And I said, yeah, I'm, you know, Paramount's going crazy and they, you know, we, we don't have it. And they said, don't worry about it, we'll do it. And I said, why? And he said, because you're gonna make our guy cooler. Like this, this is, they, they fiercely protect their, um, their creatures and their, their characters and they just said, it's, it, it's so cool, we have to put it in the movie because it makes our guy much more beautiful. And I thought that was so moving. And, and who told you that, I don't know, was... was uh, My sorry, dad. Your dad, yeah, clearly not... Uh, um, uh, uh, movie executive, because uh, um, I, I agree with you, but but you know, people don't want to hear their directors say, "I don't know." Right, right. In, in I didn't. Fact, I didn't my, verbalize. Uh, I don't know. I said, "Let's do this together." Oh, I, well, I, I, you know, the first, basically, the first time I started working with your wife, um, in the first meeting, I we were having a, a, a script issue, and and I, you know, we're a lot of pressure with a big movie looming over you, and I snapped at her. And she said, I've never made a movie like this. Like, I, you know, sorry. And I said, well, actually, I've never made a movie like this before either. I don't know, myself. 
To which my producer totally freaked out. And he was like, never repeat that ever again. He's like, nobody wants to hear the See, you know, director of a $150 million dollar film just said, I don't know. Right. Um, right. So it, it's incredible that you sort of had the, had the fortitude to be able to say that because it, it really is, uh, is, is probably one of your, the most powerful things you can do. Um, talk to me about directing uh, Emily, uh, you know, directing somebody uh, with whom you're, you're married and you're, you're conveying a marriage. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was one of these things where when I was rewriting the script, it, it, she was the only person I could think of. And yet, if I'm really honest, I didn't have the guts to ask her. I legitimately did not ask her to do the movie. She was doing Mary Poppins at the time. We had just had our second child, and so she had a lot on her mind. Um, and, but more than that, much more than that, I thought the two things that could happen is that she could say no, which would be a bummer and a weird dinner conversation. But two... I thought even worse would be, and I truly mean this, I really thought that she would say, yes, I'll do it for you. Now, as someone who's been witness to the insane level of class and taste and all the things that she's done in her career, I've literally sat on the couch and watched her make decisions and what she wanted to do next. And I couldn't be the first one to have her not be a, the decision, the reason why she made the decision. So I didn't ask her. And so she ended up just reading the script on a plane with me. And um, when she got to the end, she had actually recommended her friends. And so I was going to have a meeting with an actress, and she said, you can't let anyone else do this movie. And I said, it was like a romantic comedy where she was proposing to me, and I was like, are you saying what I think you're saying? And she was like, you have to let me do this movie. And, you know, on a flight, I just yelled yes really loud. And people were like, yes, what? What happened? Yeah. Um, and that's how it went. But as far as directing her, it was really interesting because I think we knew... And I think every human being on the planet told us, like, what are you doing? So um, we knew that this could be a really scary scenario. And I thought, again, the best way to address it is just to be honest. So I sat her down as soon as she said that she wanted to do it. The next night, we had a glass of wine. And I just said, we have to go in right now. This movie starts right now for us. And so we got to treat this like our marriage and just be as open as possible about everything. If there's anything in this script that you kind of bump on or have a question, tell me right now. And then I walked her through every single shot that I wanted to shoot in the movie. I had it in my head, and, and I've never had that before. I've never had a pure vision like that. And I walked her through every shot, and we talked about how to shoot different things and what I'd be looking for in every scene. So when we arrived on set, it was kind of just like we had been preparing a play and that this was just hers now, and she had to just rock and roll, and she knew exactly what I was going to do and what I was going to ask her to do and where the camera was going to be. And so it was just so beautiful. That on top of which, as you've experienced... The week before we went in to shoot, I was looking for an editing bay, and uh, we went to the amazing folks at 1619, and um, Rob Marshall was editing Mary Poppins there. And he said, when do you shoot? And I said, next week. And he said, oh, man, you're going to see. And I said, I know, I love her. And he said, no, you'll see. And I said, I know, I'm her biggest fan. He went, nope, not until you're in the room when she does what she does will you know why she's so good. And I thought that was an amazing compliment from an amazing director, but... Then I got, I was also kind of like, how dare you, sir? I know her very well. And um, that, that bathtub scene, you know, obviously there was coverage around the room to cover the scene, but the actual moment, the, the big scream, the big moment was one take. And, and I had the camera ready to go and, you know, uh, came from above her and, and she did one take and I legitimately felt the air leave the room. I mean, just she just took the air out of the room. Every crew member didn't know what to do and... Rob Marshall was absolutely right. I mean, not until I was physically present when she did what she did, but I, I, I don't know that I've worked with anyone better. 
And uh, I agree. <laughs> um, and uh, what about working with Millicent? Uh, that that was um, that was one of those things where it was obviously non-negotiable for me to cast a deaf actress in the role because the part was always written to be a deaf actress and or a deaf character. And what I didn't know was that I wasn't just going to get a, a deaf actress. I was going to get someone who I I'm pretty sure is not from here. Emily and I are convinced that she's like an angelic person. I really mean that. It's not a joke. She's. I needed selfishly more than a great performance. I needed a guide to. I wanted this to feel authentic, so I wanted to know what it was like to be the only deaf person in a hearing family. Did you feel empowered? Did you feel frustrated? Do you ever feel to blame for things like you are in the movie? I wanted to know, and she was so incredibly generous and so gracious and so articulate. It was like she's been here time and time and time again, and it immediately became contagious on set. The entire crew realized that there was something special and someone special in their midst, and so working with her was truly one of the greatest experiences I've had because I learned so much. I, I know this sounds super romantic, like a Hallmark card or something, but it's true. I've never had someone take in all of me when I was talking. You know, you realize how much is communicated through your voice. And this person was looking, yes, at my gestures and at my face, but she was looking truly like feeling something different, feeling my essence. And I really changed a lot of the movie um, here and there to to capture that because what she was doing was something bigger than communicating. It was almost like she had a presence that if I could somehow get it in that frame, it would be um, remarkable. So she was just an incredible partner, just an unbelievably incredible partner. And then the physical part of it, she, you know, she had a translator. But some of my favorite moments working with her is I'd come over to her to give her a note and the translator would come over to stand right by her and she'd wave off the translator and she'd sign, I know exactly what he's telling me. It was just amazing. And you learned sign language. For yeah, the... we learned sign language for the movie, certainly for the scenes. Um, then we all started learning more sign language to be able to communicate with her and then you saw like the transpo guys learn sign language. Like it was so beautiful, it was so amazing. Um, and it was, just, it was just a special thing. I, I wish I had learned more, I mean, um, you know, at the end of the movie, she started, like I said, made changes to the movie, but I'll never forget, people said, how did you form this family? And I had this weird idea, and if it didn't work, it was fine, because we could go to the old way of like, let's all go to Red Lobster together and pretend to be a family, and then we'll be a family on the film. Um, but instead, what I did is I said, bring your families over, and, and I'll bring my kids, and we'll all get together so that you can see me be a parent, and I can see you be a kid. And that's really what changed everything for me, watching her communicate with her um, parents, watching Noah communicate with his parents and how they communicated to him and what he responded to and she responded to. And they said the same thing, that watching me be with my kids, they sort of got my essence of how I would be a dad. And that was really moving. But one of the things I saw her say to her mom was she said very quickly, I love you. And I said, that's really beautiful. I said, you know, how many different ways can you say it? And she said, you know, there's, there's I love you and then there's the one you see in the movie. And then I said, um, What's I always love you? I've, I've always loved you. And she did it. And the moment she did it, she, she signed it. And as soon as her hand started doing this, I just started weeping in my living room. And Emily saw it too. And she was like, oh my God. And I was like, that's going in the movie. <laughs> and, um, and so I told her mom, I was like, I'll be stealing that line that your daughter basically just wrote in the air. So yeah, that, that's, that's how it got in. Um, and I think, uh, you know, certainly for audiences in, in cities like New York and, and probably for the critics, uh, there's a real sense that this story is an allegory for the times we're in right now of, of 
preparing children for an uncertain future. Um, I mean, I certainly, I, maybe because I, you know, politically minded, I don't know if, if people in the audience here felt the same thing, that there was, it was, it might also be a commentary, because it is so, you know, because you are, in fact, preparing your children for a future mm -hmm. that's uncertain. Um, was there any sense in your mind that this might also be reflective of, of what's happening in this country right now po politically? Well, it was interesting because for me, when I, when I was doing my rewrite, that's the thing I, I really drilled down on, this whole idea of family for me because, I mean, truly three weeks before I read the first spec script, I was, we had had our second daughter. So I was holding a three-week-old while reading a spec script about a family that's doing everything they can to protect their kids. So... It's the reason why I chose to direct the movie. Anything I do, I, I'm such a huge fan and very well versed in the large pool of talented people that those are the movies I really would want to watch more than my own movies. So it has to be something that really pulls me forward and that was it, this idea of parenthood and it really triggered all these emotional responses of what would I really do for my kids. So. Yes, to me, I always knew that it was going to be an allegory for the moment that I think all parents fear most, which is two things. One, that day that you release your kids to an experience all their own, whether it's college, whether it's you know uh, marrying someone else, whatever it is, or if it's something as simple as not being there. I remember Emily connected to that even more. She said, my biggest fear in this movie is not releasing my kids to the unknown. It's what if I'm not there when the unknown happens? And I thought that was really big and heady. But... What Emily and I talked about is certainly the reason why we responded the way that we did is because this world feels unstable. So more than just, you know, for my daughters, hoping they meet the right guy, there's more fear than that nowadays. You know what I mean? From everything from technology to will they really understand what an experience is? Will they be able to take in art and beauty and all these things? Or are we sort of sliding into this unstable, unknown uh, world? So yes, that's what it was. But it wasn't, it wasn't overtly political. But I love that you thought that. Um, well, I think, you know, it's, it's one of these films that, you know, gives room for the audience to bring their own experiences exactly. into it um, and, uh, and connect to it on a very personal level. I appreciate that. That's awesome. I mean, that's the greatest compliment you can get is that it starts a conversation. Yeah. Um, so I'm told we should uh, ask, take some questions from the audience, uh, I guess, People want to just raise their hand, and then I'll, I'll repeat it out loud. You know, I'll repeat it back. Yeah. Do you mind stepping through the process? Sure. Um, it was a 30-day shoot. Um, it was very fast. We shot it up in Pauling, New York, which was that was the other non-negotiable thing for me is that I wanted to shoot it. Um, I grew up in Boston, so the sort of northeast feel of where the woods meets the farms was very visceral to me, and so I wanted this farm to not feel like plains farm i wanted it to feel like farm with woods and lakes and rivers and stuff all around that they felt very isolated within isolation which i liked and um so we went up there i i you know the process was pretty wild because i was actually shooting this show jack ryan for amazon and was flying back to new york um every weekend i found that house on zillow um I, I location scouted on Zillow because they hadn't hired a location scout yet. Because um, I think they were like, yeah, yeah, no, we'll totally make this movie. We'll never make this movie. Um, so I was flying back and we, and we went and location scouted that um, in two feet of snow, which I thought was pretty awesome. Um, nothing better than a location scout on a tractor. That is true. We got there, there was two feet of snow, and I was like, well, this is a wash. And the guy was like, why? I have a tractor. And I was like, 
obviously we're going to go location scout on a tractor. Um, and then I finished Jack Ryan. I had five days off and I started prep on, on the movie. And we were up there, I think it was an eight week prep. We did 30 day shoot. Uh, we were very lucky to get pretty much 95% of the movie was on that location because our production designer, Jeff Recroft, is a, a brilliant, brilliant genius, not only in his design, but in his ideas, which was if we could get a location very close, we won't have to go to the stages. We, we definitely wanted to do stage work and, of course, wanted to do stage work in New York. But to travel this company, we'd kill three days just to get down and back. So he said, um, there's this horse farm just down the road, literally 10 seconds down the road. And I wonder if the state would allow us to make it a stage. And sure enough, the state came up, acknowledged it as a stage. So if you guys want to go make movies, there's a horse farm right up there that's ready to be a stage and also do some horse shows at the same time, um, which was really cool. So we were able to, uh, the location was within three minutes of each other for, for 95%. So the only thing I can tell you about that is not only logistically, certainly from a producerial standpoint and a directing standpoint, there was something different happening. All of a sudden it became summer camp. I mean, every single crew member got out of their car and they could smell the smells, the little bits of dust, corn dust flying through the air. I mean, after a while, it really does sink in. I mean, you know, again, these transpo guys by the end were like almost teary. They're like, oh, how are we ever gonna go back and do another movie? I mean, this is so beautiful. And it was, it was something really special. And so I think that that was sort of um, part of the process. And I talked about the ILM stuff, but... Um, yeah, it was, it was really run and gun, which, you know, everybody, it's the weirdest thing, right? Because when you're in it, you're like, this is how movies should be made. And then you're halfway through it and you're like, why don't we have more money and time? Um, but one of the funny things was I was talking about outside as far as process was in post, we wrapped November 1st and the movie came out uh, April 6th. So that was five months and we hadn't done one drawing of the creature. We hadn't had one meeting with sound and we hadn't had one meeting with music. And so my post situation was as crazy as anything I've ever experienced. And I was naive enough and inexperienced enough, like we, they were talking about with Edge of Tomorrow, where I was like, I could totally do it. And the producers were like, awesome. And then about three months into it, I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to literally die. And um, so we premiered in South by Southwest and 18 hours before I showed people the, the movie for the first time, I was still physically cutting picture and, and, and um, mixing sound. So as far as premieres go and being nervous, I was like vomiting blood. I was so scared. Um, and it, and it, it turned out to be the best. But the, the point of that, sorry, was the only time I was really glad that we didn't have a lot more time is after it was all done. I think if we had had six more weeks of sound mixing, I don't think I'd be here. I'd be like living in a cabin somewhere. I would have lost my mind because it was so much fun to do. But then when you start tinkering and you hear notes and I, I think I turned to my sound mixer one day and I was like, can you get the nail to be like wetter? Can it sound like wetter? And when you start talking like that, people are like, we should wrap it up. We should just, we should just let people see the movie because you're losing it. <laughs> so, you know, what's funny is I was, I was pushed to do storyboards the whole time, again, by my amazing production designer, and I didn't. I just had it in my head, and I wanted to... There was something about it that I really wanted to communicate it with it. This was my weird esoteric take, was if I could communicate it and talk to you about it, then you would have to ask questions, and we'd have to have a dialogue about it. And if you saw it in a picture, you would make assumptions that I didn't want you to make. So 
we had conversations like any movie, but we had them, it felt like exponentially, and it was awesome. I mean, for someone to say, like, now when you say army backpack, do you mean, like, actual camouflage? And I'm like, no. It's a backpack of a guy who was in the army, but it's not necessarily camouflage and things. You know, it was just really great that it wasn't drawn for me. Um, that said, there were a lot of times that I wish I had. Certainly the stunt stuff, like the stuff with the kids in the corn. I definitely probably went over a half a day on that where I didn't need to, and I probably could have communicated a lot quicker to everybody. So there were times where I should have done it. I didn't know that. Um, but I already retired, so I'll never do it again. <laughs> but if I did do it again, that's, that's, that's what I'd take into account. Certainly for the action stuff, I really want to storyboard it. Other questions? Really um, great question. It was about signing and how to shoot signing and communicate with signing actors. Um, it was something where two things, everything happened organically, and I love letting things happen organically. You know, Doug's point's very true. I, I, I didn't say I, I don't know a lot, but in my head I knew that it's okay if, you know, I've been around so many great directors that you see the best ones are willing to make mistakes. I remember um, Sam Mendes, I would say, was one of the people that I learned from most was he's as happy being right as he is being wrong. And that I remember being so unbelievably empowered by. And so I, I was shooting all the sign stuff wide enough that you could see the sign. And then you realized that the signing became a lot more casual. Millie even said it one day. She said, you know, one of my favorite things about this movie is that um, all the characters sign differently, but they sign true to themselves. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she's like, well, the father, he doesn't care about love or um, warmth or anything like that. He just cares about survival. So everything he signs is very curt. It's very small. And Emily is all about warmth, and she's all about thriving versus surviving. So she, she paints with her hands. And me being deaf, I, I, I only sign. There's no other way to communicate, so I have this other thing. It was so beautiful to think about that that then you started trusting the frame that I can go closer because it, it almost tricked you into you new sign. Like you started to see in the frame that, oh, my God, you totally know what's going on in this moment, and if I put subtitles in, it doesn't really matter. You don't have to actually see it. And um, I remember asking Millie about that. Do you, you, know, do you feel that this is going to work and things like that? But you started to learn stuff as you were shooting. I certainly, again, didn't know how to do it, and I thought you'd have to cover all the sign in, in uh, a shot. And probably by day three, I was blowing through all the wide shots of signing because I just wanted to be in there in the emotion and how they were emoting. As far as going through a whole show with signing, it was so unbelievably beautiful. It was, again, one of those things I was really scared of. And then you have this translator and you have Millie, who, again, is so open and so beautiful that you just talk directly to her and the translator will translate and Millie will look at you or the translator however she wants, but you never speak to the translator. And it became this thing of, I totally forgot that anyone was there. And then Noah, he learned signs so fast that he learned the, the, the scenes. Then he learned how to speak to Millie, just like adorableness the first three days of pre-production. And then by the time we were shooting, they were like arguing in sign. They were like brother and sister. He was, it was so incredible. So he was a huge asset for us in every way, not only a brilliant performance, but just such an amazing partner for her to have. I'll never forget the last day watching the two of them say goodbye was one of the most emotional things. They were just literally ripping two people apart from each other, which was, I'm tearing up right now just thinking about it. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it became very similar to the family in the movie. 
what I thought was going to be the scariest thing, which is having no dialogue and having to do it with sign, ended up being our superpower. It, it, it's, you, you could feel it on set, like, oh, my God, something special is happening because people aren't actually talking. It's a great question. I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble by talking about it, but who cares? Um, yes, exactly. So um, the whole idea was I wanted it to... Um, make sense evolutionarily. So the whole idea was if there was a planet, this is super nerd stuff, but if there was a planet that um, didn't have humans, then you would just do the Darwin evolution, which is, you know, a lizard comes out of a pond and a turtle eats it. So then that lizard develops a thorn so the turtle doesn't eat it. And you just keep going and going. And all these creatures make at the top of the food chain a perfect killing machine. And so on this planet, he doesn't it's dark, so he doesn't need eyes, so he just evolved out of them, and so everything else became heightened. And I remember thinking about, you know, when you have people who do have uh, things taken away, senses taken away from them, like Millie, they become super powerful in some other way, and so I wanted the creature to have that too. So when he opens up, he was choosing to listen, and when he shut down, he, was, uh, he could barely hear. Um, and then the fact that he could survive a meteor and all those things, I loved the idea in the beginning. The real difference was, again, probably an experience, was, okay, I got to make this creature look awesome. Truly, that's what I thought. I was like, how do I make a different creature? Because everybody's done every single creature. And it was one of those things where I just kept finding myself going back and back and back to my notes, which was, you didn't design, you, you don't want to design a Lord of the Rings beast, you know what I mean? Like a fantasy creature. You want to design something that actually makes sense and actually is exactly what you talked about in the nerdy version like I just did. And so in the middle of watching the cut, ILM was designing this guy, the big guy, and I saw in the frame, I was like, that's not real. And it'll take you out of the movie because this movie feels very grounded and it felt to me like it was damn near believable when we were shooting it. And so I was like, I don't believe that this guy would... <laughs> and it's funny because I was like, no, I don't believe that this guy would exist, but this guy can come from a meteor and have an ear that listens, I buy that. And so we, we just did an about face and we made him a lot more slender and a lot more, um, uh, I don't know, like, a, like kind of a scrappy survivalist evolutionary creature rather than what an ignorant person in the beginning like me thought was like, I just want a cool ass creature with pecs. And it's like, thank God we didn't do that. That would have been a disaster. But people in the film business argue all the time about things that don't exist at all, but with, with incredible certainty. Uh, the creature would definitely be this way or not that way. There's a, there's a great book uh, of uh, memos executives wish they never sent. It was compiled by uh, somebody who worked at HBO years ago. Um, and, and I'm not sure if this is the, t I'm not sure if that's the title, if that's the subtitle, because the cover is, is a script page um, with an executive's angry handwriting on it saying, a Martian would never say this <laughs> with such certainty. So it made me think of that. That's we talked amazing. about like the creature would definitely be this way, not that way. That's and, amazing. And <laughs> That's awesome. Question? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, again, it sounds like a broken record, but <clears throat> when I... Let's put it this way. I don't think you, anyone would look at my name and be like, that dude is going to direct a horror movie. I mean, I certainly wouldn't. I knew I wouldn't. Um, I was looking for something that I connected to uh, in my heart. And I know that sounds like a weird, uh, like I said, a Hallmark card. When I was doing The Office, I remember this moment where Greg Daniels, who created the show, said to me totally randomly one day, he said, <clears throat> you know, 
your job is not to deliver these lines funny. Your job is just to deliver them and deliver the truth. And if people find it funny, that's up to them. And if people find the stuff that you do with Pam emotional, that's up to them too. You should never think about it because you'll never be able to control that. And it blew my mind because it sounds like a tiny piece of advice, but it actually changed my entire career. And certainly I never would have done this movie without that. I really mean that. Because when I connected to this movie and I was emotional and I said, oh my God, I know exactly how to do this. I can make it an allegory for parenting. The idea of it being a horror movie didn't even enter my mind. I just said, I know what to do. I know to tell this story about a family. And if you're scared, that's up to you. <clears throat> and if you are fearful, hopefully it's because I created characters that you don't want to see anything happen to. So that started the whole tension conversation was making sure that the story was lock solid as best I could. And then the other thing for me was because I never even watched horror movies, if I'm honest. Like I, I could never do it. I, I, I made that decision when I was probably 12. Um, so I watched obviously every horror movie under the sun since then when I started doing this. And the first thing I learned was how stupid I was, how stupid I was to unilaterally decide to cut out an entire genre of film because I assumed that I would be scared or I assumed that it would be less than what I thought. And what I didn't realize was that especially a lot of the stuff that's going on right now is some of the best directing, filmmaking, shooting, writing. I mean, the, the concepts are so beautiful from Let the Right One In to The Witch to Get Out to all these movies. <clears throat> so... Again, it sounds corny, but like the family in the movie, I realized that the thing that I was completely deficient at or I thought that it would be my biggest problem became a superpower because I watched these movies and instead of trying to steal techniques, I said, what scares me? So I started writing down this exact moment at Get Out scared me. This exact moment at Let the Right One In, I wanted to, I wanted to hit stop on my remote. And so I wrote those down and so it was very organic and very much... When we were going through our movie, I said, what would scare the shit out of me about a kid in the flat with a flashlight in the corn? And it was like, it would not scare me now. It would scare me right now. And so it was just this thing of relaying back what I felt about movies rather than, okay, I'm going to steal from these movies. And then that said, I, I think that there's something about the more classic horror movies, all the Hitchcock stuff, Alien, I watched a whole bunch of times. Jaws is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's the tension comes from getting to know these characters so deeply and then all of a sudden just letting go of those people for a moment or a long moment in this movie. I think as soon as we leave to go to the waterfall, it's all downhill from there. It's just a bad day for this family. So that, that was sort of my process. It's just to be as honest as I could about what would have scared me. And um, it was interesting. A friend of mine at South by Southwest said, oh, I never would have thought you were the horror guy. And I was like, yeah, I can't even watch horror movies. And he went, oh. Well, that's why he directed a good one. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, if you tried to make a scary movie, you would have sucked. You would have just completely missed. But you didn't know that uh, you didn't know what you were aiming at. You just went from your heart. And he's like, that's why it was great. And I said, thank you so much. And I'm going to tattoo that to my back. <laughs> it hurt, but it's all there. All the words are there. All right. Well, uh, no more questions. Thank you, John. Thank uh, you, guys. No, I mean, it thank really is so much for coming out. I really appreciate extraordinary it. Work. Th and thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. In the coming weeks, we'll hear from directors Lynn Shelton, Jay Chandrasekhar, and Paul Schrader, so be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.
This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 